Oh, we are uh, going to spend some time over the next few weeks talking about a Monday morning faith. And, and I know that may sound a little weird uh, in the sense of if you think about Monday morning quarterbacking, Monday morning quarterbacking is those folks who kind of aren't really involved in the game. They're not in it, but then they take all the time on Monday to critique, criticize everything that happened uh, uh, on the weekend uh, before. And that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about Monday morning faith. It's not about critiquing the Sunday services or anything like that. But it's really just a recognition that sometimes there's a disconnect. Sometimes there's a disconnect between what happens on Sunday morning and what happens on Monday morning and the rest of the week. Sometimes there can be a disconnect between what happens in a quiet time or a devotional time alone with the Lord and what happens in the midst of our family or in the midst of our our work or in the midst of just the the challenges of everyday life. And so what we want to spend a few weeks just exploring, at least uh, on, on a beginning level, is what does it look like? What does it look like for our faith to be not just compartmentalized into a small section of our life, a little wedge on the pie of our life? but to really be that which infiltrates and impacts every single area of our life. Abraham Kuyper uh, put it uh, this way. Uh, Maybe he put it this way. I don't know if it's going to go or not. There it is. Uh, There's not a square inch. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, now think with that for just a moment. Just let that, let that sit before us. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence. There's not a square inch of my life or yours over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't declare mine. It's mine. That belongs to me. And so it is imperative that we learn how to bring to bear our faith into every single area of our life because every single area of our life belongs to him. And so for the sake of trying to kind of organize uh, this, I want to just think about three areas over the next three weeks. I want to think about family, I want to think about work, and then I want to think about the whole area of busyness and what does it look like in an age where we just wear busyness as a badge? What does that look like to live out our faith in an incredibly busy age? So we want to begin, and I want to encourage you to find the 127th Psalm, Psalm 127, and we're going to look there for four principles of living out our faith in the context of our families. And this is not everything the Bible has to say about families, but I think it's, it's four principles that hopefully will be helpful reminders to us along the way. I'm kind of like the, the, the guy who, uh, old preacher who said, you know, before I had kids, I had six theories about kids and family. <laughs> So now I got six kids and I got no theories at all, right? And maybe you can identify with that. And and the purpose of this is not just to heap guilt upon any of us, but to challenge us, to remind us along the way. But before some of you check out, I also want to say, maybe you say, well, listen, I'm beyond the child-rearing years, or I'm single, or or whatever it may be. Let me just encourage you, when we're, we're talking about this, First of all, we are all connected to a biological family, uh, an adopted family perhaps, uh, but we, we're also connected to an eternal family, uh, a church family, and that all of us have responsibilities and privileges 
in relating to generations, those who have gone before us and those who are coming after us. And so regardless of what season of life you find yourself in, I think there's some, some truth here uh, that, that can be impactful for how we live our daily lives. The 127th Psalm, verse 1, I'm going to just read the whole psalm. It's very short, five verses. Encourage you to follow along. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. There's a lot there, but let me just focus on four principles that I think stand out. And the first one is simply this, love alone is not enough. Love alone is not enough. And why do I say that? I say that because there's a lot of folks that kind of have a Beatles philosophy of parenting, right? Right? All you need is love, right? Dun, da, 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 da. All you need is, come on, help me, love, love, love is all you need, right? <laughs> and you got it, right? Some of you are saying, who's the Beatles, right? <laughs> but we have this idea that, well, yeah, love is all you need, and love is huge. Love is huge. But love alone is not enough. We need, certainly, the heart of God. We need the heart of God unless the Lord builds the house. We need God's heart. We need God's capacity to love because when we need love the most, we deserve it the least, right? We need God's heart to be able to love the unlovely, love people when they need it the most and deserve it the least, whether that's under our own roof or the people we interact with in, in, our, in our life, in our neighborhood, in our work environments, or in a church family. We need the heart of God to be able to love. But I also would suggest to you that we need the wisdom of God. We need the wisdom of God. Uh, that just trying to do it on my own, just trying to even do it maybe the way I was parented isn't enough, that I need God's wisdom uh, to be brought to bear, particularly in a day and age where it can be so challenging, a day and age where there are so many messages being bombarded unto our families and our children. We need the wisdom of God to be able to navigate these waters. But I would suggest to you we also need the strength of God, right? The strength of God because parenting can be wearing. Life in the family can be so, so challenging. I, I got a little bit tickled when it, it, there in verse 2. He said, for he gives his beloved sleep. And I'm thinking, boy, sometimes in those years of parenting, you don't get a lot of sleep, right? Uh, they're, they're, there's missing sleep when they're little. And then sometimes you're staying up all hours when they're teenagers and all of those things. And, and then sometimes they're even gone and you're still finding yourself sometimes losing sleep. We need the strength of God. We need that strength to be able to carry on, to lean in when we just as soon check out, to, to, to go ahead and hang in there when we want to give up, the, the strength to, to, to press in, to be involved, to relate when all we want to do is withdrawal and kind of veg out. 
We need God's strength to be able to live in the family as he intends us to be. We need God's strength to realize that our family is our first responsibility before God. It's our most important job, and it's our primary mission field. Not the only job that we have, but it is a primary job. It is our first responsibility before God. And so as we think about the fact that love is not enough, that I need God's wisdom and I need God's strength, let me ask just a very simple question. How? How have you set about to learn God's ways of rearing a child? Can I challenge some of us as men, particularly in this? Sometimes we invest an awful lot in learning about our job. We invest an awful lot about learning about our hobbies. We, we get subscriptions. We go online. We read this. We pursue this. We want to get the latest gadgets and update. But do we invest that same focus and that same energy in learning about God's ways of investing in the life of a family? of investing in the people that matter most to us. And so while love is hugely important, by itself it's not enough. I need the wisdom of God. I need the direction of God. I need the strength of God. And so I just ask you today, how? How are you setting about to learn, to remind yourself, to sharpen your saw in learning God's ways of rearing a child? The second thing I want us to see is that God grows our children in twin gardens. Twin gardens of home and church. Very interesting. Some of your Bibles may have kind of as a headline or, or a little uh, heading there above the 127th Psalm that it's a song of ascent. And what that means is that these were songs that were often sung by, by pilgrims. They were traveling in community. They were traveling with other people as they were ascending. They were making their way up to, it's geographically up, up to Jerusalem. And it was just a reminder that, that this psalm is not just directed to an individual. As Americans, we most, almost always read it as an individual. But so many of the things in Scripture are, are written to a community. They're written to those who are connected with one another. And one of the things this reminds us of is that we need to prioritize relationships in both places, in the home and in the church, to prioritize relationships in both places. And when we come to passages like Deuteronomy 6, we understand it's not just written to an individual but it's written to a community. It's written to a community of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. There is an intentionality within the context of a family, but within the context of community to prioritize relationships in the home and in the church. And so let's unpack that for just a little bit. What does that look like, first of all, in the home? The home is the primary place where kids learn the gospel. 
It is the primary place by God's design where kids will learn about the gospel. Now, I realize that in some sense that runs counter to how we oftentimes operate in our country now, right? In our country now, we kind of take our children to places to, to get what they need, right? We take them to school for reading, writing, arithmetic, right? We, we, we take them to dance. We take them to, to, to ball practice. We, we, we take them to gymnastics. We take them to this, and then we kind of bring that mindset, and we like take them to church, and like you kind of do the spiritual thing with them. But that was never God's design. It was always this partnership, these twin gardens of the home and church. The home is to be the primary place where kids learn the gospel. The church, the community of faith, is to be a partner with the home in that. And the home does that in word and indeed, in word and indeed, in word, we are teaching, we are instructing our kids in the word, in the word of God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that Deuteronomy passage kind of gives us some, some ways to do that in the flow of our life. So it's not just a segmented thing on Sunday morning. So let's think about it this way. Mealtime. It says, when you sit in your house, when you sit in your house, Now, what this means is, if you're actually going to have a conversation, everybody can't be on a device, right? The the TV can't be, like, blaring. That I have to be attuned in. They have to make space for conversation. And please, as we go through these, don't, don't walk away from here thinking, oh, well, this means like every time we sit down for a meal, I have to say, thus saith the Lord. It's not that. I mean, you know, sometimes meal times are like, get that pee out of your nose or, you know, something like that, right? I mean, you know, I get it. I get it, right? I mean, I'm not, no illusion here. It's just in the, in the rhythm, the rhythm of saying, hey, we're going to prioritize relationships. And one of the ways that's going to show up is we share meals together. Now, I know that looks different at different seasons of our life, but as we share those meals together, it begins to be an opportunity to talk, to talk about our life, to talk about our faith, to impart, to plant those seeds and water those seeds along the way. Meal time, but also drive time. When you walk along the road, Now, maybe you and I take walks for exercise, but when we have to get from point A to point B, in our culture today, we don't walk very much, right? We get in the car and go somewhere. We we, we go, we take photos, and this can be some of the greatest conversation time in the world, right? There is something about like facing forward, right? And maybe not even feeling the pressure of looking in each other's eyes that actually sometimes can help a conversation. Now, again, if you've already always got a video going or everybody's got earbuds in or something, that becomes a real challenge to to, to have any conversation take place. But some of the best conversations can take place in those moments of drive time. You could never sit down and say, let's talk about this. (laughs) But in the car, there's something about that environment. It's it's like sometimes people have these conversations with strangers on an airplane. I don't know what it is, right? Uh, We can have these conversations. Meal time, drive time, bedtime, when you lie down. And again, I know this is different for different seasons of life, but particularly when they're younger, what a great opportunity just to have those moments of, of 
building in some rituals or routines that this is kind of how we go to bed. This is what we do. And, and sometimes there's just some, some great conversations. And maybe you have one of those kids like, man, they're ready to talk then because they don't want to go to sleep, right? And so it's like, well, you can, you can like combat that or maybe you can leverage that. Maybe you can leverage that a little bit along the way. And then there's morning time. Oops, excuse me, morning time when you get up. And again, I understand, life can get so chaotic, and sometimes morning is just feels like survival, right? It's just, it, does everybody have clothes on today? I mean, did, did anybody get anything to eat? And let's just get them out the door, right? But to begin to think, are there those moments where we can set a tone, where we can begin to, again, drop seeds, water seeds, inject those things along the way. So it's an intentionality of prioritizing a relationship. And Deuteronomy gives us just this great outline of just being able to think of mealtime, drive time, bedtime, morning time as just some pockets where we can prioritize that relationship. We do that in word, teaching our kids the word. But we also do that in deed, uh, the place where kids see the gospel lived out. In many respects, what it means to impart our faith, what it means to kind of live our faith in the context of the home is just explaining, explaining to our children what they are already observing in our lives. Now, that becomes a challenge if they're not observing it in our lives, right? Uh, But to be able just to begin to talk about, this is why we do this. This is why I made that decision. That's why this is why I'm I'm saying this or why I'm saying don't do this or whatever. But I begin to explain what they're already observing in our lives. And that leads us to some just some challenging questions, doesn't it? If I'm going to teach, if I'm going to help the people under my roof to see the gospel lived out, then I need to ask myself, is God the clear priority of my life? I mean, if they're going to watch me, are they actually going to see the priority of God in my life? Secondly, do I own and apologize for my sins and failures? Because everybody knows it when you blow it, right? (laughs) Do you own it? Because we all do. Do you own it? Do you apologize? What a model for the way that we're to relate to each other, but even as we relate to God. And then thirdly, do they see God's unconditional love, graciousness and faithfulness reflected in the way that I treat other people? Beginning with the people that live under my roof. Do they see it in the way that I talk about other people, other groups? What do they see? Do they see the love and the graciousness and the faithfulness of Christ reflected in how I treat and how I speak about other people? Now, before we move on to church, let me just push the pause button here. Because at this point, if you're like me, there's a part of me that always hates doing messages like this. Because it just highlights all the ways I blew it <laughs> and keep blowing it, you know. It's just like, oh man, I am like absolutely the worst person in the world to be talking about this. There is no such thing as a perfect family. But here's the amazing thing. God still works through imperfect families. 
And if you don't believe it, just read the Bible. I mean, there's some messed up families in the Bible, right? I mean, I mean, before there was like the word dysfunction, they were like living it out. I mean, read the pages of Scripture. There's some dysfunctional, messed up families in there, and God still worked. God still did amazing things, even in the midst of messy situations. There is no home that's perfect. We have all blown it. And we'll continue to. But God is involved even in the mess. And it's not about you being a perfect parent or you having a perfect marriage or you having a perfect home. There is no such animal. It's just about you keep showing up and keep prioritizing relationships and keep growing in intentionality of what you're trying to do in those environments. There's the home But the other garden, the other twin garden, is the church. And we say it this way, kids need a second family. Kids need a second family. We're convinced that every child and every student needs to be connected to at least three things outside of their own family. They need to be connected to life-changing truth. They, They need to be hearing that, certainly in the home, we've talked about that, but they need to be in that second family, they need to be in that other environment where they're being exposed to, where they're encountering, where they're wrestling with, where they're seeing modeled imperfectly for sure, life changing truth. And every child and every student deserves to be in that environment where they experience life changing truth, the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But secondly, we feel like every child and student needs to be connected to a caring leader. A caring leader. Another voice saying the same thing the parent is saying, right? And many of us as parents have experienced that, that frustration where you have said something a thousand times. You have said it as clearly and as creatively as you know how to say it. And then one day... Your child who has seemed to have a brain block around this one thing comes back and shares with you that this other person, this teacher, this coach, this somebody from church said this and it's like the greatest thing they've ever heard. And you're going, what about me? I've been telling you this since you were that high. That's why. That's why you need a caring leader. Another voice saying the same thing that you're saying. Because sometimes, sometimes they may hear it better from somebody else than they'll hear it from you. A caring leader. But thirdly, a consistent group of peers. A consistent group of peers. Someone else who believes what I believe. To, to ask God, maybe, maybe part of the journey here is just to ask God for some other influencers in the life of a child, in the life of a grandchild, in the life of, uh, of some neighborhood kid or somebody in your extended family or somebody that you work with on, on the preschool or the children or the student hallways over here. And just, Lord, bring someone into their life who will be a a caring leader. Bring someone in their life who will be a a consistent group of peers. Maybe just to pray, Lord, just bring one other person, just one other person in their life. And as you pray that, maybe to pray, God, help me to be that one other person. Help me to be that one other person 
in somebody else's life. It may be part of God's assignment, part of God's calling for you is not just what you do with your own children, but how he uses you to impact the lives of other children and future generations. Send some of those people into my child, my grandchild's life. Send me to be that person in the lives of some others. Now let me pause here before we walk away from this point. We talked about prioritizing relationships in the home and in the church. What I think we find increasingly in our our culture right now is that we tend to prioritize experience over relationships. And that we want our children to have all of these experiences, right? I would do this, do this, get them in this. They got to do this. They got to be involved in this. And we sometimes run our families ragged, taking our children from experience to experience to experience, right? Can I just share with you? Life has not transformed eternally at Disney World. Nothing against Mickey. Go enjoy. But that can't be the highlight of your parenting journey. That I gave my child this experience. We can be experience rich and relationally poor. I think what God is saying is be relationally rich. Even, even if sometimes that makes you a little experience poor. I think some would be well served to back off some experiences to create a little margin for relationships along the way. I'm not saying that they're totally contrary. Sometimes you can build relationships as you have those experiences. But prioritize the relationships in the home and in the church. Third principle from this psalm, and that is God entrusts us with children so that we can prepare them for his mission. So that we can prepare them for his mission. Verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of a womb, of the womb, a reward. Verse 4, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now, there's an interesting picture there. There's a picture of your child, the one who has been entrusted to you as an arrow. Now, think about that. What is the purpose of an arrow? It is not to be encased like in a museum, right? It's not to be put on the shelf for display. No, an arrow is to be launched forth. An arrow is to be thrust forth into enemy territory. And that's the picture that God gives us here in his word, that we are entrusted with these arrows. Jim Elliott left a very promising career in the United States to serve as a missionary in South America. He would eventually be martyred for his faith, for taking the gospel where it had not been before. And the ripple effect of that continues now through generations. But as he was coming to this decision, he wrote these words to his parents. I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. But remember how the psalmist described children. 
He said that they were as a heritage from the Lord, and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them straight at the enemy's host. Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious. And all thou spendest, Jesus will repay. See, the ultimate purpose of the family is not just to protect your children from all harm, but to mobilize them for the mission of God. Now, that is a radically different way to think. I understand that. I mean, I understand we are, we are in some sense such a safety protection obsessed culture right now, right? I mean, I'm, I'm honestly surprised I'm standing before you because I rode a bicycle my whole life without a helmet. I, you know, I, I don't know how you get by with that, right? My parents allowed us to go out and do things on asphalt without like knee pads and elbow pads and all of those things. And we were so like, so horrible that in our neighborhood, we would like pile bodies in the back of a pickup truck and ride around, right? Oh my goodness. How did we make it? <laughs> now, don't ride on a car. Don't you understand? Helmets protect. I do. I do. <laughs> I do. I do. Grandson's got a helmet. That's, uh, you know. Listen, the ultimate purpose is not just to protect them. Yes, as a parent, we want to protect our children. Yes, there are dangerous things out there we want to be aware of. The ultimate purpose is not to just get, keep them safe in museum glass. It's to unleash them. It's to mobilize them for the mission of God. As arrows are launched forth. And to do that, we have to point them to a better story. A better story than what our culture is telling. A better story where they have uh, an intricate role to play. That we have to invite them to be a part of God's story. Donald Miller tells a story about a friend of his who was having trouble with his daughter. She was causing dad and mom great, great concern she had gotten involved in a gothic lifestyle, was dating a guy who was bad news from beginning to end. And as a frustrated dad, his technique for dealing with this was the technique that many of us dads employ when we're frustrated, right? Yell, make her go to church, right? Except it wasn't working. In some desperation, he talked to his friend Don about it. And Don looked at him and said, I think your daughter's choosing a better story. He said, what do you mean? He said, we were designed by God to live inside a story. And right now, your daughter's playing a role in a story. A role where she feels wanted, 
and feels desired. In your story right now, she's yelled at. She feels guilty. And she feels unwanted. She's just choosing a story that's better than your story right now. And the story you're providing. And then in the midst of this awful story, you're making her go to church. As if that's punishment. you got to start telling a better story. The dad became inspired. God kind of prompted something in him through that. And he began to do a little research and he found this small village in Mexico that desperately needed an orphanage. And he called his family together and he told them about this little village in Mexico and he proposed that their family take on building an orphanage in that little village. And he said it was going to cost about $20,000 to start. And they didn't have $20,000. And so he said, here's the deal, you guys. I found this village that needs an orphanage. Awful things may happen to these kids if they don't have a place to go. So I think we need to build this orphanage as a family. It's going to cost 20000 bucks, and we don't have it. I think we need to raise it over the next couple of years. And he brought out a whiteboard, and he asked his family to brainstorm with him. As the ideas began to flow, the daughter finally caught a glimpse of the story and talked about her social media and that she could had lots of friends and maybe we can use that. And the little son said, you know, we're going to have to go to Mexico. We got to see this firsthand and we got to get our passports and all of these things. And what's happening? They're getting caught up in a story, a better story with risk and adventure where they get to be the hero and the heroine. Within three weeks, within three weeks, the girl had broken up with her boyfriend. Not because somebody yelled at her and told her she had to, but because she got caught up in a better story. A better story. The heart will gravitate toward whatever offers adventure and significance. And when we just make it our object to protect, we're not inviting our families into a greater story, a better story. But when we see them as arrows, arrows that are to be launched forth, to be released on the mission of God, then, then we invite them to be a part of God's story. God entrusts us with children so that we can prepare them for his mission. One last principle from this psalm. God knows that you need his help. God knows that you and I need his help. Parenting can be an incredibly challenging journey. There are days that you think, what have I gotten into? Why did I sign up for this? Is there a way to get out of this? Uh, The challenges along the way. That's why this very first verse says, unless the Lord builds the house. Yes, I have to labor. Yes, I have to watch. But unless the Lord is involved in it, I labor in vain. And I need God's help. And so here's the way to live that out. Make sure the Heavenly Father hears about your kids daily. Make sure that your Heavenly Father 
hears from you about your kids daily. And maybe that starts before you even have a child. Maybe that starts in the womb. Maybe that continues when they're little. Can I tell you, it doesn't stop when they leave your house. In fact, is sometimes I think you pray for them more. Every day, every day, make sure your heavenly father hears about your kids on a daily basis. And so let me just throw out a few thoughts to get started here. The first is pray about what to pray about. You know, I, I, I know we all tend to pray for those, you know, Lord, help them have a good day at school and, you know, travel back safely and not get beat up by the bully and, you know, whatever it is. But beyond that, to say, God, you know what you're doing in the life of my child. You know what you're purposing to do. God, how do I pray with them in accordance with your will? So pray, pray about what to pray about. And then read and pray the Bible. It's amazing that as you spend time in the Bible, this, things jump out and there's this passage. And immediately, if you're a parent or if you're investing in the life of the next generation somehow, that, that God brings that person to your mind. All of a sudden, it's like, I know what to pray today. I'm praying this particular truth, this particular promise, this example, or this error, or this sin away from them. That I know I take God's word and God speaks to me about how specifically to pray for them. And then I want to just encourage you, we were talking about, pray for your kids, but pray with your kids. Pray for your kids and pray with your kids. And I know that maybe becomes challenging more as they enter in different seasons of life. Maybe when they're little, that's a, a bedtime or a morning time. Maybe, maybe as they get older, it's a, it's a, it's a quick sh- hand on the shoulder as they're running out the door or whatever it may be. But pray for your kids and pray with your kids. And then here's something, honestly, I wish I had done a whole lot better job of. I I didn't. And that is to ask your kids to pray for you. To ask your kids to pray for you. You know, sometimes as parents, and particularly as dads, we we like to have it all together, right? I want to be strong. But to be able to ask our kids to pray for us, and certainly age-appropriate, But there's something powerful about that example of even saying, you know, you never graduate from your need for God. And I pray for you, and would you pray for me? And just to ask your kids, some of them are doing it anyway, but to ask your kids to pray for you. Now, as I try to bring this together, I'm going to give you a couple questions and then just spend a moment or two with a visual. The questions are these. What is most important about your child? Who they are or what they do? Not saying both aren't important. I'm saying what's most important. Because sometimes we can get so locked in, particularly in our achievement culture, locked in on what they do. How did they perform academically, athletically, or whatever it might be? How did they perform? that we can begin to devalue a little bit who they are becoming. What's most important, who they are or what they do? Said another way, what is success? What is success? Is it just the American dream? 
that they do a little better than I did? Or is it God's dream? God's purpose for their life? Not saying they're totally against each other, but there are times they will be. What is success? Psalm 90, 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And if you've been in some of our children's environments, maybe you've seen or heard or read about just a visual that can help us to do just what that psalm says to teach us to number our days. It's a jar of marbles. That's just what this is, just little marbles. There's 936 marbles there, which represents the estimated number of weeks between birth and high school graduation. And it can become just a a powerful visual of one week at a time to move a marble. And just to remind yourself that time's ticking, that every week matters. And, And you may think, well, that's... Isn't that depressing? Isn't that morbid? But I I would suggest to you that when we kind of have a clock, that it actually changes the way we play the game. I mean, think about what happens in the last two minutes of a close football game, right? Is that some of you are caught up in a little March madness right now. You're, you're watching a basketball tournament. What happens in the last few seconds of a tight basketball game? The intensity, the energy, the passion, the focus, it all increases because now you understand, hey, time is moving on and what we do in this moment really, 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 really matters. And sometimes it helps. Sometimes it helps to just visually see. Because when you see how much time you have left, you tend to do more with the time you have now. When you see how much time you have left, you tend to do more with the time you have now. You see the weeks go by one at a time. And then they're five years old. And you have 676 weeks left. And then they're 12 years old. And you have 312 weeks left. When you see how much time is left, you tend to do more with the time that you have now. Now here's the encouragement I want to give to you.
we don't have perfect days and we don't have perfect weeks. And sometimes we have horrible days <laughs> and horrible weeks, right? All right, it's just my house, but go with me here, right? And sometimes we can think if I just, I'm just so messed up. It's a bad day, it's a bad week, they're going to be scarred forever. <laughs> Here's what I'm just going to tell you. There's power. There's power in week after week after week after week. And you keep showing up. And you do it imperfectly. But you keep praying. And you keep prioritizing relationships. And you keep honing in with intentionality. And you keep laboring. And you keep crying out to the Lord. And week after week, time after time, God does something extraordinary. It's not just in a moment, but it's in these series of moments where week after week after week, you continue to cry out, you continue to show up, you continue to invest, you continue to prioritize a relationship with God and a relationship with your family. And as those weeks run by, you see that God has been at work in the midst of the time. And as you invest time after time, week after week, God does some incredible, incredible things. This is not just about Sunday morning. This is about week by week by week. When you become aware of the passage of time. When you see how much time you have left, you tend to do more with the time you have now. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer, please. Oh, Father, you are the inventor of time. You are the one who, oh, Lord works in the midst of time. And, and Lord, we don't fully understand it, but you have chosen to, to work uniquely uh, through time. And Lord, we just pray right now, Lord, would you, would you help us to, to number our days? Would you help us to recognize the passage of time? Would you give us an increased capacity to, to be aware of how to use our time now, even as we're aware of how quickly time is moving on? Father, I pray. Lord, I pray for some that perhaps are having all sorts of feelings and thoughts and maybe for some of us there's, there's guilt. There's things we wish we had done better or differently. Lord, thank you that you use imperfect parenting <laughs> to do extraordinary things. And so, Father, regardless of where we have been, would you help us to be more intentional right now? Would you teach us how to live, how to pray, how to prioritize relationships, how to major on those things which matter most, we need your wisdom. We need your strength. 
We need your love. Father, let this be a fellowship where families can flourish in the twin gardens of home and church, where we partner together for the good of families, for the glory of God. I'm just going to ask you just to be still.